Okay, what would you like to say, Tommy? One, two, three. Go, Tommy! Grief can't be all negative and sad. Hello, hello, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the first episode of the Good Days, Bad Days podcast. I'm Rachel Vani, and I am going to be your tour guide through this journey through grief. It is a doozy, isn't it? <laughs> I started this podcast because I have learned so much through my own personal journey through grief. I would call myself not necessarily a grief expert, but I'm I'm very experienced in, in the realm of grief. And I'll get to my story in, in a little bit, but uh, I wanted this to be an exploration of all things loss, not necessarily the grief and loss and trauma that we experience with death itself, but through all aspects of our life. There are so many experiences that every person goes through in their life where they experience grief in some capacity. Of course, it's variable, right? There are some things that maybe you're just disappointed in or you had an expectation on how things are going to go and it doesn't quite go in the way that you expect and you feel loss over that. And it goes all the way up to death where you lose a loved one or you experience chronic illness that completely changes the way that you have to live your life. So I'm going to not only have guests on my show that have experienced this personally, but I also want to invite people who have a professional or expert background in grief, loss, all aspects of what we're going to talk about. So I'm really excited because we're going to get those dual perspectives on things. Hopefully you can relate to some or hopefully you get something out of it. I know I will and I'm so excited to talk with some of the most interesting and amazing people that I've met along the way. So Rachel, who are you and why are you talking in my ear? Uh, Good question. Well, it's a long story. I'll keep it short for time, time purposes, but let's go back to 2014, January 2014 to be exact, and that is when I had my daughter, Charlie. Now, Charlie was, up until the time she was born, we had no idea that anything was wrong. Perfect pregnancy, everything was great. I was married to an amazing man named Tommy, and we were anxiously awaiting the birth of our daughter. And then we had her, and it was amazing. They put her on my chest. I got the full natural crunchy granola birth experience that I wanted, and 20 hours later, our entire world just fell apart. She wasn't breathing right, and the lactation consultant got the doctor, and before I knew it, there was a flood of doctors and nurses and who knows who else just running into the room, grabbing her and leaving. And I remember being in such a state of shock at the time that I didn't realize what was happening. I thought that, oh, she's fine. She's probably fine. Tommy, why don't you go be with her? I'll get a shower. I hadn't showered since the birth. I felt gross. I was like, ah, go. I'm sure it's just a a blood sugar issue and she'll be fine. I remember Tommy's face when I came back in the room from my shower and he just looked at me and said, there's something really wrong. 
And I just realized at that moment that it wasn't going to be okay. Maybe. I didn't know. And then I went into her room in the NICU and realized that things weren't going to be normal ever again. I saw people working on her, putting IVs in, rushing around. I just stood there and I started crying. And I very vividly remember one of the nurses coming up to me and putting her hand on my shoulder and saying, do you have a religious preference? And that was my first experience being in the hospital and knowing and being able to read that, oh, wow, this is really bad. When they start asking you about religion in a hospital, you know that there's there's something is about to go down. So uh, I I don't really remember too much. It was a blur past that. It was, I didn't sleep. I was trying to like pump for the baby. And long story short, a couple days later, we found out that she had a very rare genetic disorder called gluteric aciduria type 2, also known as multiple acyl-CoA dehydrogenase deficiency, or MAD. Not Mothers Against Drunk Driving. That's a different MAD. This is another kind of MAD. And what it means is her mitochondria don't work correctly and the fatty oxidation cycle in her body doesn't process fat and certain types of protein correctly. So what that does is essentially when she eats fat, any fat, it turns into a toxin in her body and it has to get filtered through the liver and it was getting her liver was just getting destroyed right from birth. And she went into kind of a coma-ish state for a couple days, but things started turning around. We had amazing specialists at the NICU, but they told us that we would be lucky to get a year, and so we should go home on hospice care. So we went to home on hospice. The hospice nurses were some of the most amazing, and I mean, I can't even, there's no words. There's no words to describe pediatric hospice nurses. There's just something very, very special about them and their ability to help you through this incredibly tough time. I'm actually still in touch with Charlie's uh, pediatric hospice nurse. She was, she's an incredible person. So being on hospice care necessarily doesn't mean the end of life. I mean, of course you have all the drugs in your fridge to end your child's life, which is the weirdest thing. Hey, honey, where's the milk? Oh, it's uh, right by that bottle of morphine that we might use when our child decides to die. (laughs) It's a terrible situation. Um, But she was getting better, not worse. And we were able to actually graduate off of hospice in 2015, a little bit after her first birthday. There's nothing better than being able to flush those drugs down the toilet. I checked to make sure that was okay. But I flushed that morphine down the toilet and there was nothing that made me happier in that moment. And then having those drugs out of my house and not being reminded that my child could die every single time I went to go get a snack. Then comes 2016 and 
we are thrown for another loop when my husband is diagnosed with stage four non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Tommy. Tommy was one of those people that didn't have a mean bone in his body. You could not get him mad if you tried. Well, actually, you could get him mad if you didn't speak about dinosaurs in a very positive manner or snakes. (laughs) He was a nature boy. He loved being out in the woods. He loved animals and dinosaurs and just being happy. He had life figured out. And he joined the military after 9-11 and he wanted to be a pilot more than anything. But he was a crew chief for F-16s. And he intended on becoming a pilot until after he got deployed to Iraq. Now, me and Tommy met right before his deployment, two months actually, right before his deployment, and we just clicked. It was one of those things where we met each other and we were like, yeah, this is great. We'll hang out all the time. Oh, wait, you have to go to Iraq. And when he was in Iraq, we talked as much as we possibly could, sending emails back and forth, sending letters. When he came back, we it was just an understanding that we were going to be together. I really feel like his cancer was the direct result from him being in Iraq. His barracks were very close to the burn pits in Iraq. And this is becoming more and more common that you're seeing all these cases of very weird, aggressive cancers coming from people who were exposed to those burn pits. Who knows what they were burning out there? It was the government. They would burn everything. And I remember him telling me about the smell and how horrible it was. And they were just stuck on base and they had to breathe this stuff in 24-7. So I really believe that it was linked to his service. But you would never hear from him regretting what he did. He constantly would talk about how proud he was that he was in the military and that he served his country. But when he returned home, he didn't have the desire to become a fighter pilot anymore. He told me that the whole thing had changed. He didn't like the way that the military was being run. He didn't like the decisions that the pilots had to make. And he decided that he wanted to get out. When he got his cancer diagnosis, it was my daughter Charlie's second birthday party. And he came to me that morning and told me that his back really hurt and he didn't feel good. And we both thought that he had kidney stones. He had a history of kidney stones and we just thought, oh man, what a time to get a kidney stone on your second your daughter's second birthday. How terrible is that? And I was getting the party ready, getting, you know, ready for everyone to come over. And I said, you know, how bad is it? Could you drive? Like, can you drive yourself and go get some pain meds? And then I'll have my dad come pick you up and I'll drive your car back. So he's like, yeah, yeah, I got it. Cause he was, you know, didn't want to, didn't want me to worry. Didn't want Charlie to miss her birthday. So, you know, I let him go the hospital. I get a call about an hour after the party had started and he was crying on the phone and he said, they think it's cancer. 
And I remember that was such a weird out-of-body experience that I immediately rejected it. I went, no, oh my God, these doctors, they are so crazy. You don't have cancer. That's stupid. (laughs) But I didn't let that sink in at all. I just deflected it as a defense mechanism of my body because we had already been through so much with Charlie at that time, multiple hospitalizations, surgery, and I just like, no, no, you know, we have like a bad threshold limit. I believe that there should be a bad threshold limit in someone's life. Like you could only have like this many bad things happen to you at once. So that's not allowed. And, but he came home and although he was doped up on some, some pain meds and felt a little better, I could tell that it was really bugging him. And within a couple of days, he was in so much pain that he had to go back to the emergency room. I, it got to the point where he couldn't even stand up and he was admitted with low blood oxygen because the tumors in his body were restricting his breathing and restricting the blood going to his heart. I remember sitting in the hospital room with him and he, in true Tommy fashion, apologized for getting cancer. (laughs) I remember just laughing And telling him, are you seriously apologizing for getting cancer? But that's just the way he was. We went through a long, a long couple months of lots of chemo. He joked the entire time. He had a sense of humor. I never saw him get down about it until the very end. And the only reason that he got down about his cancer was because he knew that he wasn't going to be there for Charlie and I. The cancer went to his brain in September of 2016. And despite multiple surgeries on his brain, chemo injected into his spinal column, all of that, he kept fighting, kept fighting, kept fighting until in November, November 9th, 2016, he just couldn't do it anymore. And he passed away. Now I'm going to tell you something in incredibly dark humor that I said the day that the doctors came in and told me that there was nothing else that they could do. And I tell you this because it's exactly how Tommy would have wanted it. The doctors came in with somber faces. I was sitting next to Tommy and I just looked at them and I knew what they were going to say. So I just quietly said, don't tell him that Trump won the election because he won't want to wake up. And I just remember the look on their faces. They were like, really, is this girl joking right now? But that's exactly what Tommy would have wanted. He would have laughed his ass off at that joke. But they told me, um, the cancer is everywhere. There's really nothing that they can do. And they could do radiation on his brain, but it would likely change his personality. It would make him a vegetable, essentially. And I know that that is not how Tommy wanted to live. And I mean, I wouldn't want to live that way. And we had had talks. If the worst case scenario happened, what would he want? And I knew that wasn't what he wanted. So I had to make that decision. 
after he passed, I was suddenly a single mom of <laughs> with Charlie and Charlie you know, she was the easiest child ever in personality, but her medical needs were very demanding. So I was exhausted all the time, but very happy to have a piece of Tommy behind and to continue to take care of her and everything she needed. I noticed in April of 2017 that her health was declining. She was losing hair. She was becoming more weak. She was having dark circles under her eyes. So I talked it over with her specialists and we decided to move forward with a liver transplant. Now, a liver transplant on a pediatric GA2 patient had never happened. So we were starting from ground level, which takes time. We had been prepping for it. There had been one adult liver transplant with a GA2 patient, but, you know, we doing anything on a child is takes a lot of paperwork. It takes a lot of preparation and it takes a lot of support from very smart people. So it took time to get all of that together. But by the end of May, I noticed that Charlie's breathing was weird. She never had any breathing issues. Her issues were always blood sugar related. So I thought maybe she was coming down with a cold I took her blood oxygen level and it was in the high 80s. I immediately called her specialist. We had oxygen at home, so I put oxygen on her and told the specialist, hey, we're going to come into the ER because there's something funky going on. And I didn't know what was, I mean, she was acting okay, so I wasn't super worried. But her blood oxygen was low and I didn't know why. So we came into the hospital. I had no idea that this was going to be the last hospital visit. She progressively got worse and worse and no one knew why. Then on June 3rd, 2017, she had to be airlifted to UCLA, which is where we were going to pursue a liver transplant. She couldn't breathe on her own. She was on a ventilator. Things were just going downhill every single day. They had no idea why. It was just like her body decided that enough was enough and she was done. And June 8th, 2017, she passed away. I mean, there's really not anything that you can say other than it sucks. It sucks so much. Really, it sucks. Losing a child is the most painful thing that anyone can ever go through on earth. There's nothing worse. You could tear off my limbs you could impale me with a sword or poke my eyes out and it will not even come close to the pain of losing a child. I, I, I don't want you to do those things because that would really suck still. But, you know, there are things that in this life that just, ugh, ugh. There's, there's no words. There's no words to describe it. But there's also something freeing about going through the most horrible thing you can possibly go through and survive. And I know that there are so many people out there that have experienced loss of a child, miscarriage, you know, infant loss, teenage loss, suicide, all those things. And it feels so isolating in that moment. You feel like you are 
in this big room of people and you are the odd one out. No one wants to talk to you. No one wants that reminder that their child can die. And that's what you feel like, right? You're the reminder that the worst case scenario can happen to people. And that's not a very good party trick. (laughs) So what I want to do with this podcast is talk about it. There are people out there that bad things happen to. And likely everyone will have something terrible happen to them at some point in their life. If not, holy crap, congratulations. But knowing how to connect with other people and create your own support system when or if bad things do happen is so important. So I'm going to leave this podcast with a couple tips on how to access your support system. If you just experienced a loss, you're probably going through this period that they call disorganization where everything feels super jumbled and you can't make sense of anything and everything is very confusing. That is so normal and that will last for a while depending on your loss, how you grieve, all those types of things. It's different for every person, but for me, it lasted months and months and months. So one of the things that you need to do immediately is find a grief counselor. And even those people who are like super against therapy, trust me, a grief counselor will make all the difference, at least in just the fact that you go somewhere once a week, twice a week, whatever you want, you go to the same place. Establishing that routine and going to a place and talking about your grief will set you up for success in the long term in going through the grieving process. If you need help finding a grief counselor, call the hospice uh, in your area. A lot of them offer either free or sliding scale grief counseling options, even if your significant other or child or parent or sibling, whoever was not on their service. A lot of people don't know that. You can also just see a therapist that is experienced in loss and grief, but getting that professional guidance through the grieving process is key. So make sure you have that. Second is appointing a personal friend or family member that you trust as the go-to person to make decisions when you can't choose a friend, choose a family member that you know, understands the way that you work. They can speak to you in a way that doesn't piss you off and they can ask you questions without you getting overwhelmed or you can give them specific instructions on what things that they can make decisions about that you don't care, right? For instance, if you have a lot of funeral arrangements to make and you just don't care about the flowers, maybe tell your friend, hey, can you take care of the flowers? I don't care. I trust your judgment. Getting, assigning those things out to people will take a lot of stress off of you in that moment. And you have the right people want to help, especially right after a loss. That's when you have the most help. So jump at it. Assign people things. You don't have to do everything yourself. Three, it is okay to say, I don't know. I'll get back to you. You don't have to make all these big decisions at a moment's notice. Maybe you want to think about things. If someone says, hey, where would you like to have the funeral? And you're not sure. Maybe you want to do a little research. Maybe you want to think, meditate on it for a while. That's okay. Just say, hey, you know what? That's a good question. 
I don't know. I'll get back to you. And that's okay. No one expects you to have all the answers. And number four, take time to remember that person every single day. And I don't mean sit and stew in it because that is not going to help anyone. Those first few days, it is totally normal to stew in it. But as you progress in your grief journey, set time limits on how long that you think about that other person in a constructive way. You might think about that person all day. That's fine. What I'm talking about is spending too much time looking through photos, videos, text messages, you know, those type of things. You can do that, but set a limit, right? Set a limit for one hour every day or maybe a couple hours a week. And when you set that limit, set a timer. And when that timer goes off, say, okay, now it's back to the world of the living. I have things I have to do. I need to be productive. I need to take care of myself and focus on you during those other times because that person is gone and it hurts so bad. And all you want to do is go back in time and relive those memories, but you are still living and you need to take care of you. So that is our show for today. Generally, we will have a guest on, but today it was just little old me, but we end every single episode with a pun in true Rachel fashion. So today is a death pun, and so I will leave you with this. After seeing an ad for burial plots, I thought to myself, this is the last thing I need. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time.